Uh, buenos dias. Good morning. I bring greetings from Albuquerque Mennonite Church, and I'm so glad to be with you all on this auspicious occasion, this Pride Sunday. So naturally, I would preach on Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Here's a fun fact. For most of my life, I have struggled with anger. I say this with zero pride. In fact, my anger has expressed itself over a lifetime in some very unhealthy ways. I've experienced denial and shame and anger about my anger. And didn't you know women are not supposed to be angry? Especially Christian women? And oh my goodness, Mennonite women. Yet in various forms and intensities, my anger remains. Not as a blind rage kind of anger, but more often as a low and slow heat that sometimes boils over onto my kickboxing bag. And the more that I'm able to be honest about how I feel and the more I'm able to name problems, I'm more able to respond in healthy ways and improve the situation. So today I thought it'd be fun to name names. A few things that make me angry. Unnecessarily aggressive drivers. You know the type. They speed up when you're trying to change lanes with your turn signal. Perhaps this is confusion over actually seeing a turn signal. Something else that makes me angry, people who drive entirely too close to the bike lane when there is a bicyclist there, especially when it's this one. When I make a mistake in the kitchen, when I burn something, I break something, I over-season something, basically anything I can't fix, I get really frustrated. You can ask Ryan later. <laughs> I get angry when folks make conscious or unconscious assumptions about my competency as a leader and even my intelligence as a person because of my age, my gender, and or my orientation. I've experienced more than my fair share of discrimination and microaggressions in these areas, and quite honestly, I'm out of patience. In the words of Representative Maxine Waters, who's an African-American woman, I'm reclaiming my time. I'm done. How about this one? When I hear people insist on a narrow hermeneutic, that is a way of reading and interpreting the Bible out of laziness, arrogance, or both, because a narrow view of a few verses is far more convenient when the goal is reinforcing one's privilege rather than challenging one's worldview in the expansiveness of God's love. I certainly have in mind the recent Romans 13 scandal. I could pitch a tent here discussing separation of church and state and the historical abuse of that verse alongside others to reinforce everything from slavery to genocide. Only for a few verses later in the same chapter to have a direct quote or reminder of the repeated command to love one's neighbor. This is Paul quoting from previous passages and reminding people of something they should already be familiar with. Though perhaps 
claiming in a slightly different context or time. But like I said, I'm not going to get into all that. The abuse of scripture based on convenience and so-called plain readings of the Bible is painfully familiar and similar to how today's passage has often been abused and used. This is one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible, and I don't just mean Genesis 19 specifically, but the entire story of Sodom and Gomorrah as a whole, which goes beyond this one chapter. In fact, just saying those words and using those names, Sodom and Gomorrah, is probably already triggering for some of us who have had this story thrown into our face because most people think they know what it's about, but clearly they do not. I grew up in a church that strongly emphasized Bible study, and I will always be thankful for a lifetime of building biblical literacy, because biblical literacy has helped shape me as a person to lean on wisdom that's at least partially outside of myself. To have a high level of biblical literacy is not so that one can sit on a high horse and throw out nerdy facts, but to deepen the challenge of the text and to recognize the potential for divine teaching. If you have any sort of majority identity, that is, in our overall broad Mennonite context, white or perceived as white, American citizenship, middle class, straight, cisgender, that is, the gender you understand yourself to be is the same gender you were assigned at birth, English-speaking, able mind and able body, if you have any sort of majority identity and reading the Bible does not challenge you, the way you read the Bible has been clouded by your privilege. And I would wonder about your sincere openness to the Holy Spirit's teaching and conviction. Back to Genesis 19. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah as a homophobic myth probably comes from the work of an Alexandrian philosopher by the name of Philo or Philo. Picking up steam among Christian communities beginning in the third century AD. The derogatory use of sodomia or sodomy or sodomite, referencing something other than a person from the geographical region of Sodom, began in, wait for it, 11th century medieval Europe. That is well over a thousand years after this story was shared through oral storytelling, then eventually written down. Learning from this passage of Sodom and Gomorrah is not a head-scratcher. In fact, the prophets interpret these events for us in much closer historical and cultural proximity than, say, 11th century medieval Europe or 20th century gender role-obsessed North America. The great excruciating irony here is a passage and a story intended to be a warning about violence against the other or the outsider is used to religiously abuse a different vulnerable minority as if sexualized violence and domination is the same as affection 
between same-gender loving couples. Genesis 18, when Abraham and Sarah received the visitors or angelic messengers with hospitality. Then the beginning of Genesis 19, when Lot shows deep kindness and hospitality, is intended to be a comparison to how the community will treat these visitors or angelic messengers. This is a story on how to treat an outsider, a displaced person, an immigrant, a refugee. And that's not necessarily according to me. It's according to the prophets, how they interpret this story. From Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Ezekiel 16. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me, Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations you have committed. This hospitality theme interpretation is how Hasidic tradition, that is very conservative Orthodox Jewish movement, reads Sodom and Gomorrah as well. There's a story from the Talmud, a collection of interpretations and rabbinical teachings that goes like this. The Sodomites enjoyed a relatively high standard of living. Regarding Sodom, the Torah tells us that the entire plain was well watered like the garden of God. And it follows that the crops were plentiful and good. The selfish Sodomites did not want to share this bounty with outsiders. And to this end, they enacted laws and took great pains to repel travelers. For example, in order to enter Sodom, one had to cross a river. The townspeople built a bridge over the river. Perhaps we could use the word wall. And charged a fee of four zuzim coins for all who chose to cross it. Now should someone try to bypass the toll by swimming across the river, the law was that he would pay double the fee of eight Zuzim coins as penalty. It happened once that a traveler, unaware of the local custom, swam across the river hoping to save himself four Zuzim coins. 
As he tried to enter the city, the guards stopped him. Pay the bridge fee, they demanded. But I did not use the bridge, he said. I swam across the river instead. In that case, you owe us eight Zuzum coins. The stranger refused to pay the exorbitant fee, and the guards soundly beat him. When they were finished with him, the wounded man dragged himself to the magistrate and demanded recompense for his suffering. The judge listened carefully to his tale of woe and then issued this verdict. For having crossed the river, you owe eight Zuzum coins, as is the law. As to the beating, you must reward each of these fine people at the gate because everyone knows the medical benefit of an occasional bloodletting. This sounds painfully familiar. According to Chabad.org, the Talmud does not tell us what happened next to the poor man. However, we hope that he left post-haste because an even worse fate awaited those who chose to remain. Painfully familiar. Of course, it's tempting to reflect on these teachings and say, oh, I am glad I am not like those people in Sodom or those border guards today or even those conservatives over there. When this is our approach, we miss the opportunity to see ourselves in the story and therefore be shaped by divine wisdom. We also forget that we, mostly white Americans, collectively benefit from systems that are rigged, such as the immigration process. Rather than hearing these stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, of our violence against immigrants and putting ourselves on a high horse, what if this moved us to anger? I don't mean destructive anger, we don't need God's judgment or anger to come down like fire and brimstone. When we destroy creation, when we destroy our neighbors, especially those that are vulnerable and in need, we destroy ourselves already. We are perfectly capable of self-destruction. What if we moved from destructive anger to productive anger? From anger that blocks us from seeing one another to anger that fuels our ability to recognize the image of God in one another. Experiencing anger has the potential to point us to God because anger towards injustice is one sign of being in the image of God. In our passage from Genesis 19, the visitors or angelic messengers save Lot from the angry mob through direct action and intervention by, quote, reaching out their hands and bringing Lot into the inside of the house with them. They save themselves and Lot by bringing him inside with them out of danger. Not only during these major media coverage times, remember the sanctuary movement for immigrant justice has been active for over 30 years. But in all times, when we have an opportunity contri to contribute for the safety of those in need, 
May we not be like the people of Sodom who took advantage. May we have the kindness of Lot, recognizing the divine image in our neighbor and being moved to action. May we have the courage of the visitors pulling people inside into safety, those who need protection. Amen. We're going to use the um, insert that you have for our